Welcome to the Littler Labor and Employment Podcast, conversations about employment and labor law issues that impact the workplace. Hello, I am Oka Ramchandani Raj, a Littler of Council in Walnut Creek, California, and a member of Littler's COVID-19 Task Force. And I am Melissa Peters, Special Counsel with the Walnut Creek Office, and I am a member of the COVID Task Force as well. The increased speed of the novel coronavirus, COVID-19, in the United States presents employers with significant workplace challenges. The following podcast is designed to address some of the common questions employers will face as they return their workforce back to the workplace. Employers are also encouraged to consult relevant FAQs and guidance put forth by the Center for Disease Control, Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, OSHA, and the Department of Labor, among other government agencies. Because the COVID-19 situation is dynamic, with new government measures occurring every day, employers should consult with counsel for the latest developments and updated guidance on these topics. Littler has put together a COVID-19 task force with over 100 attorney members that specialize in various areas of employment law, including SFCRA, the CARES Act, Occupational Safety and Health, American with Disabilities Act, medical privacy, furloughs, layoffs, traditional labor and union issues, unemployment, and virtually every niche of labor and employment law that you could possibly imagine. If employers think it was difficult to manage the workforce during the pandemic, returning back to work is going to be equally as difficult. During the pandemic, people may have lost coworkers, family, friends, and people may be in mourning. Several people may have endured financial difficulty during this period. There is a high likelihood that people are going to be using terms such as Chinese virus in the workplace or things that may be perceived as targeting certain racial backgrounds or national origins. Employers need to be vigilant in the morale of the workforce to ensure there's no discrimination, harassment, or retaliation. Employers should be ready to open investigations and adequately discipline employees to ensure they are preventing potential future claims anywhere in the workforce. Melissa, what are some of the safety issues we will see with returning people back to work? Well, Alka, I think some of the big things that we're going to see and we're already starting to see include the timeframes for safe return to work as triggered by employees' exposure to a confirmed positive individual or contraction of the virus. So, I mean, what's happening now is the CDC, as they are updating and shifting their guidance, we, when we provide advice to to our clients, are having to shift our, our and update our advice and counsel as well. And what we're dealing with now are, are new categories that are, are coming out in response to what really are current conditions that the healthcare workers and the healthcare industry are dealing with, you know, primarily because of a lack of personal protective equipment, lack of testing availability, things like that. Something new that we're dealing with now is what has been deemed a presumed positive or a presumptive positive diagnosis. And that occurs where somebody goes to the doctor, they're exhibiting signs and symptoms of COVID-19, and for whatever reason, be it lack of personal protective equipment, the possibility that the patient is not exhibiting severe symptoms, or maybe it's, it's a lack of availability of testing kits. 
the, the healthcare provider is not testing the individual, but they are recommending or instructing them to self-isolate and quarantine for 14 days. So in reality, although there's no diagnosis or confirmation that the person has the virus, they are being treated as if they do. And as a result of that, we are having to advise employers to respond to these employees that have been deemed presumptive positive or presumed positive in the same way as if they have been diagnosed. And that's just an example of, of sort of the shifting issues that we've been dealing with on the safety and health front. Of course, other things that are going to be really big on the return to work front will be healthy work practices. I mean, social distancing, obviously, is a term that, you know, we didn't even talk about or even know two months ago, and now it's, it's on the radar and said probably 10 times a day or in every conversation that I have, certainly. So employers are going to have to emphasize social distancing practices and put in place protocols and guidelines that incorporate social distancing into almost every part of the day, whether it's break room etiquette, workplace seating, contact free food delivery. We even have some employers who have gone as far to install sort of like kick touch pedals on restroom doors so people don't have to touch the restroom door when they go in and out. These are things that are going to be increasingly important in terms of ensuring that employees are not unnecessarily exposed to the risks that are arising from the virus. And that's something that as, as time goes on, we're having to create and work with employers to come up with new guidelines and protocols to address these concerns. Finally, we, something big that we're seeing is, is the use of health screening questionnaires and templates. And that's something that a lot of employers are putting into place in, in conjunction with temperature screening. Really, it's, it's a situation where everyone's trying to figure out what they can do legally within the, the legal parameters and not violate individual rights for their workers while also trying to balance that with the responsibility to keep them safe and healthy. And because the situation is changing daily, in addition to the guidance we're receiving from organizations like the World Health Organization and the CDC and OSHA, we're having to sort of adjust and create new policies and procedures and recommendations for our clients every day, really. And, and this is going to be continuing throughout the time of these return to work situations, the shelter in places, the rolling furloughs. So it's going to be an interesting time indeed. Alka, I think that you've responded regarding wage, hour, and furloughs. What other issues do you think will occur with people returning back to work other than what we've talked about already? That's a great question, Melissa. Employers may have to go through the entire rehiring process as they're putting people back after a furlough or a layoff. The key question that you need to ask yourself is whether a temporary layoff or furlough was actually a separation of employment, depending on the jurisdiction and the circumstances surrounding the layoff or furlough, that answer may be yes. If employees remained on benefits and at full pay during the layoff or furlough, and the furlough was of short duration, it's less likely that this will be considered a separation and that employers will have to go through the entire rehiring process when reinstating employees back to work. If, however, the furlough was unpaid, employees were not eligible for benefits and the furlough lasted six months or more, it is likely that it will be deemed a legal separation of employment, which would require an employer to proceed through the rehiring process. It's imperative that employers 
review their state laws to determine what will be required upon the employee's return. They should also review requirements of I-9 to determine if there is a federal requirement to reprocess I-9s. Employers should look to see if they've paid final pay, paid out vacation, or took other measures before the furlough or the layoff. If they terminated and rehired, they have an option of re-verifying the I-9 using Section 3 or completing a new I-9 form. If they treated the furlough as leave, then they have the option of returning employees back to the workplace without completing any of the I-9 documentation or the rehiring forms. Some additional issues employers may face are regards to wage and hour issues in the workplace. Some employers may bring back formerly exempt employees into non-exempt positions. Employers may cut costs by reducing the workforce, and some employees that generally would be considered exempt may start performing work that is non-exempt, and it may change their exemption status. So employers have to be careful when they're returning people back to work to ensure that their employees are properly classified when they're paying them out. In addition, employers may take on some new dynamics with regards to paying bonuses or changing bonus structures. Employers may need to redesign incentive comp plans to ensure people stay with the company or to ensure that the company stays viable. It is highly likely people will not be returning back to the same pay structures that they left prior to the pandemic. So we're gonna see a lot of changes from the wage and hour side as well, and employers need to be vigilant about these changes before returning their employees back to work. Melissa, what about if COVID-19 is still an ongoing issue when we return employees back to work? Did the CDC publish any guidance on what to expect with preventative measures in the workplace? Uh, that's a great question, Elka. Uh, yes, they have. As I mentioned, the CDC is continually updating their guidance. So it's very important to regularly check their site to ensure that you have the most recent recommendations. Two things that are really important and have been touched upon are use of masks in the workplace as well as cleaning protocols. You know, cleaning protocols, it's recommended that employers institute regular housekeeping practices which includes cleaning and disinfecting frequently used surfaces, shared equipment or tools, and other common areas, such as you know, break room equipment, microwaves, you know, water coolers, or you know, coffee makers, things like that, where there's a high frequency of, of regular contact and touching of surfaces among employees. It's also a good idea to provide employees with disposable wipes and encourage employees to do a regular disinfection wipe down of the areas where they're working or their private workspace, whether it's an office or a cubicle type situation, it's important that everybody is cleaning regularly. And of course we know for that, that common over-the-counter disinfection products like bleach and Lysol are effective in killing the virus and that's what should be used. It's also important because the transmission is through respiratory droplets. If you do have a situation where an employee has been confirmed COVID positive and they have been in a certain area of the workspace 
or a particular room or something that's more closed off, not open air, it's recommended to air out that area as much as possible to try to disperse and eliminate the respiratory droplets. And the CDC is recommending that you air out open doors, outside windows if possible for a period of 24 hours prior to commencing cleaning. Now, we understand that that's not always realistic. And of course, how you clean and whether or not you're able to wait 24 hours before cleaning is gonna be dictated on the industry that you're in and also the, the physical layout of, of the facility or the work site. There are some work sites that are open plan, very large. In a situation like that, we're recommending that employers do the best they can to identify where the exposed or sick individuals, confirmed positive individuals have been and then to address that area, disinfect that area if it's not possible to close down the entire site. If you have a smaller space with a lot of closed off areas, it might be worth closing down the space for 24 hours, airing it out, and doing a disinfection before bringing people back in. Of course, that is on a very fact-based, case-by-case basis that is determined by the space, the parameters of the space, the geography, the layout, and of course, how many employees you have there working. But that's basically what the cleaning recommendations are right now. Another issue that everyone's been talking about is the use of masks. And this is a topic that has, you know, shifted back and forth. Um, two months ago, the Surgeon General was telling people not to wear masks, not to use them, not to buy them because they weren't effective in preventing the spread of the virus. We've known from the beginning that wearing a mask contains the respiratory droplets, which is how the virus is spread. So certainly for persons that are confirmed positive that have COVID-19, it makes sense for them to be wearing the mask if they're going out in public, you know, which they shouldn't be unless it's to a doctor's appointment or for some other emergency situation, they should don the mask to ensure that if they cough or sneeze, they're not projecting respiratory droplets out into the universe and spreading the virus to other persons. Now, however, the CDC is saying, you know what, we do think that using masks is going to be effective in preventing the spread, which previously people were saying, hey, yeah, if you have it, it contains the respiratory droplets, but it's not going to prevent a healthy wearer from becoming infected. Now that advice has shifted and CDC and other organizations are saying, hey, you know what, we do think it's going to make sense and be effective to prevent the spread of infection if people start wearing these masks. Now, just a little bit about the different types of masks that exist, because there's a lot of information out there. And you, you have a basic cloth mask that outside of potentially being able to contain the respiratory droplets, it's not gonna have any filtering capabilities, which something like a filtering face piece or a respirator would have. Then you have a surgical mask, which is different from a filtering face piece and a regular cloth mask in that it has sort of a waterproof component to it. And because they were designed to be used during surgery, it's about containing, you know, of course, respiratory droplets and moisture from contaminating you know, a, a patient's body during surgery and certainly for protecting the surgeon's face from spatter for bodily fluids and blood. So there's the waterproof component there, but there's no filtration of airborne particulate matter 
with a surgical mask. Then the last category is you have what is, is commonly known as the N95, N99, and N100 masks. And those are filtering face pieces. And that's the category that exists before you get into the, the, the real deal respiratory protection, like the powered air purifying respirators and the hardcore filtering face pieces that use oxygen cartridges and things of the sort to, to filter out particulate matter. So the, the designation N95 means that 95% of non-oil-based particulate matter is going to be filtered out. N99 means that 99% of non-oil-based particulate matter is going to be filtered out, and so on and so forth. The way it works is there is an electrostatic charge that exists in the fibers of the face piece. And it's very important that, you know, these disposable masks, the integrity in the form and the care of the mask is maintained as much as possible given that there is a shortage of masks. Because if you start exposing these masks, certainly to humidity, it can break down the electrostatic capabilities and the charge within the fibers thereby making it less effective in terms of filtering out the particulate matter. So it's important, you know, employers are going to have to provide some sort of instruction. Um, if, it, if it comes down to the fact before we get everyone back to work that the CDC is saying, yes, we feel strongly about this, we need to provide filtering face pieces or masks to employees, what's going to happen is, you know, an employer is going to have to provide some sort of basic instruction to their employees on, on the maintenance and care of these masks. Certainly, if they require the employees to wear them, that will trigger OSHA regulations um, and require them to have a respiratory protection program, a written program that they provide the employees training with and on, including things like the care and maintenance of the face pieces and proper storage. Uh, certainly, if, if it's a voluntary thing and the employer does not require it, but employees would like to wear it and choose to wear it, there are different requirements. You know, the employer is required to, to provide certain literature that is a part of the federal OSHA regulatory guidelines on respiratory protection, and that's true in California as well. But, you know, those are, those are nuances that should be discussed with your counsel. And certainly the most important thing is because the information from the CDC is changing and, and fluxing almost on a daily basis, it's going to be important to make sure that you check with the current OSHA regulations and the current CDC guidelines and recommendations just before the return to work because that's where you're going to find the information that you need and hopefully our questions will be answered as to whether or not employers are going to have to require that their employees are wearing masks and face pieces. So with that said, Alka, what are your thoughts on returning people back to work after they have been out on leave? That's also a great question, Melissa. If employees have been off of work because they were confirmed presumed positive or experiencing symptoms of COVID-19, then employers should exercise precautions and ask those employees to obtain some kind of certification from a healthcare provider that they do not pose a risk of transmission by being in the workplace. Currently, some of those type of documentation that we are seeing that is available is discharge papers or other doctor's notes you can also, in some cases, obtain a fitness for duty after someone has been discharged if a doctor is willing to complete the form. 
To the extent that employees returning to work have underlying health conditions that make them high risk to severe illness if they were to contract COVID-19 and they request some sort of accommodation, whether leave, protected gear, or something else, then employers should seriously consider such requests and engage in the interactive process if they cannot grant the request outright. So there's a high chance that with people returning back from COVID-19, we're going to see a lot of accommodations that are going to be required. From a leave perspective, employers with fewer than 500 employees should be aware that the SFCRA is now in effect. They should have the mandatory DOL poster conspicuously posted at the work site and be prepared to offer leave, which can be up to two weeks of emergency paid sick and up to 12 weeks of expanded FEMLA leave to eligible employees who qualify for such leave. We also may have people returning during the pandemic and the employer may be in a location where there is a recommendation for temperature checks. Employers should have protocols with regards to temperature checks if this is an issue. Temperature checks are quite difficult to do. Temperature checks generally, when there was no pandemic, were highly discouraged and in some cases illegal. Under the EEOC, it is necessary to show that there is a business necessity to avoid a direct threat of harm to conduct a temperature check because it's considered a medical examination under the Federal Americans with Disabilities Act. Many clients in the U.S. are experiencing pressure from unions, employees, and international colleagues or headquarters to take greater action in response to the outbreak including conducting these temperature checks. And we've seen a lot of governors and other agencies also mention temperature checks as an option for employers to implement in the workplace. And the key thing is the employer has to form a good faith basis for arguing that the temperature checks are a business necessity to avoid a direct threat of harm under the Federal Americans with Disabilities Act. Studies have indicated that temperature checks sometimes fail to detect COVID-19 in approximately 50% of the, the time. So temperature checks are not determinative necessarily of the person having COVID-19. However, it is a deterrent in, in some ways. Generally, employers can use temperature scans as a tool to curtail the risk of infection by COVID-19 in the workplace assuming they are implemented in a safe and consistent manner. So what does that mean? Well, the first thing that employers should do is to make sure that they have a consistent process of how they are going to conduct these temperature checks. Temperature checks should be conducted on all individuals before they enter the premises. This includes people, whether they are executives or their hourly employees, regardless of their level or their exemption status, if they're a contingent worker, a vendor, a customer, or a visitor. If it is feasible for the temperature check to be conducted privately, employers should take those measures into account because medical privacy and disclosure of a high temperature can be problematic, not only from a medical privacy concern, but also because you don't wanna heighten 
paranoia in the workforce with other employees determining that somebody has a temperature and whether they've been exposed. The check should be conducted by someone who's been adequately trained to perform the check consistently and safely. So you may have to provide training to those employees that are actually conducting the check if you have employees conducting the check. Some employers are actually getting other third parties who are trained in conducting these checks to conduct these checks for them. There are several companies that perform this type of service and employers should take advantage of that if they do not want to train their own employees in conducting these checks. In addition, they have to provide personal protective equipment to those people that are conducting these checks because they are not social distancing when they're taking these temperature scans in most situations. So the employer should think about what other type of personal protective equipment must be provided to these people that are actually conducting these checks. In addition, there are many different methods that an employer can conduct these checks and the employer needs to decide which is the correct measure. There are some temperature scanners that are available. There are also different types of temperature monitors, some that could be oral, some that could be monitored by the ear or by checking the temperature on the forehead. The key thing is employers should ensure that whatever method they're using is adequate and is accurate. Using a device that's inaccurate or that's not in good working condition can lead to a lot of issues for the employer. Also, employers should ensure that they are using the same mechanism for all employees. So an employer should not have a combination of a temperature scanner, an oral thermometer, and a head scanner because it's likely to create inconsistent results. The documentation that is collected from the temperature scan should be secured and stored in a separate file from the general personnel file of the individual. The information should be limited to employees and only be provided in a need-to-know basis, specifically in response to the coronavirus outbreak. The information should not be maintained in a single logbook because it would not be possible to sequester individuals' medical data and maintain confidentiality. Records should be maintained for the normal period of time that visitor logs are maintained, which may include industry or company-specific standards, or for at least three months. Whoever is conducting these medical checks and these temperature checks, they need to be an authorized person to perform such work. Additionally, employers must have an objective cutoff for elevated temperature. So your policy can be for whatever the CDC guidelines are. Currently, the CDC guidelines have the number 100.4 degrees Fahrenheit, which is the recommended temperature for healthcare workers. That is an objective cutoff. Additionally, employers can take extra stringent measures at a little bit lower of a temperature or a little bit higher of a temperature if that's what they determine is necessary for their protocols because of their equipment that they're using for these temperature scans. All persons whose temperatures exceed the cutoff generally should be excluded from the workplace regardless of their status. One issue that we're seeing with temperature checks is when an employee objects to having their temperature taken 
and they're disciplined or sent home, there's a potential for a retaliation claim or a disability discrimination claim under a regarded as disabled theory. The employee should not be admitted to the workplace because that would undermine the basis for doing the screen. Based upon the nature of the employee's job, the employer should consider all options when somebody comes back with a high temperature, including sending the person home, telecommuting from home, sending the person home without pay, or looking in to see whether the person can be paid through the FFCRA or other means, including the company's own paid sick leave policies. There are many other considerations that employers should take with regards to temperature screens. These are just a few of them. It's imperative that employers check with their counsel as they're conducting these temperature screens because there are a lot of variables in place. Okay, that's fascinating. This is our report on the COVID-19 pandemic. Thanks for joining us for this important discussion. Stay tuned for further COVID-19 podcasts. The purpose of this program is to provide helpful information for employers addressing the latest developments in labor and employment relations. It is not a substitute for experienced legal counsel and does not provide legal advice or attempt to address the numerous factual issues that arise in any employment-related issue. To discover other labor and employment podcast series from Littler, the largest global employment and labor law practice, visit littler.com slash podcasts.